for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Bird. Tonight, flying cars. They've long been the stuff of science fiction. You saw them in the Jetsons. The Back to the Future series even predicted we'd have them by 2015. Well, that didn't happen. But we might be one big step closer to seeing it come true. A flying car company from California has received a special airworthiness certification from the Federal Aviation Administration in the U.S., meaning they can test them. The founder and CEO of Aleph Aeronautics joins us to explain what that means. How much attention do you pay to best before dates on food? Well, it turns out they are widely misunderstood, of course, often seen as an expiry date instead of a pretty arbitrary date by which the product is expected to retain its optimal quality and taste as determined by the manufacturer, mind you. Now a parliamentary committee is advocating getting rid of them to save on food waste. Will that work? Speaking of food, a new survey out of Britain shows that 25% of respondents there didn't know how to boil an egg. Now, that might suggest that cooking is becoming a bit of a lost art, but it turns out there has been a surge in interest in learning how to be productive in the kitchen. We find out why. But first, office space vacancy hit near record highs in this country in the second quarter of 2023. Cities such as Toronto and Vancouver used to be amongst the lowest in North America when it came to office vacancy. And there's still more being built as we speak. A lot of the issue is with older office space built back in the 70s and the 80s. So what do we do with it? I was talking about Montreal. That's where we'll start tonight because I spotted an interesting story from there today. If you've ever been along Sherbrooke Street West near McGill University, you'll have walked by this building. It's the former Standard Life Tower built back in 1961. It's a pretty cool looking building, about 21 stories. And it was their head office from 62 until 2015 when the company was bought up by Manulife. Well, it's a sign of the times that someone has now bought that office building and they want to convert it into rental apartments. Now, when I was growing up, that was prime office space in the heart of downtown Montreal. But right now, like so many cities across the country, it needs more apartments than cubicles. So there you have it. It comes as a national office vacancy rate in this country climbed in the second quarter to its highest level since 1994. That's according to a report by commercial real estate firm CBRE. The firm said Tuesday that the national office vacancy rate rose to 18.1%, up from 17.8% in the previous quarter. Again, the highest since 1994, when it was 18.6%. The only places it didn't go up was in Calgary and in Waterloo, in that area. Um, Places like Vancouver, it's 11.5%, up from 10.4%. In Toronto, 15.8%. Montreal, 17%. And it's still 31.5% in Calgary, even though it came down a little bit. And that's despite the fact that before the pandemic, this country had the two lowest vacancy office markets in North America, in Toronto and Vancouver. So what will become of all that office space? Will it bounce back? Or is it time, as is the case in this one building in Montreal, to start looking for some other uses? Joining me now with more on that is Susan Thompson, Associate Director of Research at Collier's. Susan, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, we're three years removed from the onset of the pandemic. We remember at the time, we didn't know how long we'd be out for, and then we were all out for quite a while. And it sort of changed the nature of how we viewed office space. It's still struggling, isn't it, to find its footing again? Yes, much like many other parts of commercial real estate, office is now facing its evolution. And it is the way we use office space is changing. So we're starting to see those pandemic effects on our utilization of office space start to play out in uh, how much is being given back to the market in terms of vacancies. 
And we're seeing it pretty consistently across the board. I know there have been places that started off from a, from a worse spot, like a Calgary, where the vacancy rate was already really high. It's starting to improve a little bit. But in places like Vancouver and Toronto, where, where vacancy rates were really, really low five years ago, they're up above 11, 15 percent now. Yeah, so we started the pandemic in really strong position in those markets. In fact, it was too tight. There was no space for a lot of these companies that wanted more space or to come into the market to go into. And now the situation's kind of flipped. A balanced market is kind of in that 6 to 10% range. We've shot straight through that and we're now above it. So a lot of markets are going, okay, what do we do with this excess space? And that's really a critical conversation that's happening in every market, not just in Canada, but across North America and beyond. Right. Is it hitting the same kind of office space? I mean, I, I always think of office space as being sort of, you know, downtown Toronto, the towers or downtown central Ottawa, all those big government buildings and all their towers. Is is that what we're looking at? Or is it pretty widespread? Because there are office buildings in Mississauga, there are office buildings in the suburbs, right? There are lots of, there's just lots of office space out there. I know. And everyone likes to think about the shiny new towers. And don't get me wrong, we just came off a massive uh, construction cycle but it's not the new towers that are facing the issue. We, there's what happens is uh, called a flight to quality. So we see tenants start to gravitate towards the newer, modern buildings that can serve their needs. And what happens is as companies move up into those bigger buildings, uh, we grade buildings on a scale. So you get those really trophy brand new assets and then we get A, B and C. And it's those B and C buildings that are really starting to see the vacancy. Right. I, I guess the, the A are those, you mentioned those quality buildings. The D would be the inexpensive stuff, I, I assume. And then the B and C yeah, is and all that stuff in the middle, right? All that stuff. And that's where there's a big, big glut of space. So, yes, we just had a big construction cycle. We've added more new office space in the last 10 years in Canada in downtown markets than we have in the prior 20. However, what we've added in the last 10 years shadows what was added mid-70s to mid-80s. In a lot of markets, we added something like 75 million square feet of downtown office space in that 10-year period, mid-70s to mid-80s. In the most recent cycle, we've added like 34, 35 million square feet. So big difference. However, the lifespan of a building before it requires capital investment to keep it viable is 50 years. Right. Well, so do the math. Today, right. Do the do the math, and the math. here we are. Yeah. Do the math. Here we here are. Here we are. That up to somewhere between a quarter and a third of downtown space in most markets in Canada was built fifty years ago, in that mid seventies to mid eighties range. And those are the buildings that are starting to see the vacancy pile up, and because they're facing down, they already need capital investment to stay viable. The owners, developers, cities—they're looking at them going is it maybe time for them to be something else if we're going to have to invest in them anyways? Right. And of course, all those new buildings, I mean, I was in a, in a brand new building recently uh, in an office. I mean, just the advances in, in everything, you know, climate, so on and so forth, have been so extreme in the last 15, 20 years that there is a real marked difference between a building built in 2015 and a building built in 1975. Correct. So if you... If you close your eyes and think about a B or a C building, it's going to have small floor plates with punched out windows, not going to have very many amenities, and it's going to be a you know small, unimpressive lobby. 
you know, the HVAC system's probably going to struggle to keep it the right temperature, probably doesn't have the right wiring for modern computers and technology. It's all of these things that add up to, you know, it's really tough for those buildings to compete with the new ones. If you were to put aside what happened three years ago, I know we can't put aside the pandemic, but if you were to put that aside, what was the plan then? Because these buildings were going to need, uh, you know, updates anyway, coming up this decade, next decade. What was sort of the plan for these buildings? Were they going to be become somewhat obsolete no matter what? And this has just accelerated that? And, and there's always a cycle with buildings. So we've got buildings that are much older than 50 years that have managed that landlords have invested in to keep them modern uh, and appealing to various tenants. So if it made financial sense to invest the money to keep that as office space, those landlords would have done so. But now they're looking at it going, even if I invest all that money, is it going to be able to compete and can I attract tenants? So they're going to say, what's the highest and best use of my dollar if I'm going to have to invest in this building anyway? Susan Thompson is with us from Collier. She's Associate Director of Research. We're talking about uh, vacancy rates with no office space in this country. I don't know if you've been downtown. If you live in a city centre, maybe in a, even in a smaller place, you may have noticed that a lot of office buildings just aren't as bustling as they used to be. You see it in the foot traffic. You see it in the businesses that are set up inside and around to service those office buildings as well. Uh, we've seen vacancy rates up at 11.5% in Vancouver, nearly 16 in Toronto. Uh, Montreal, 17%. So way above where it's where it's supposed to be in Toronto, Vancouver, had some of the lowest in North America before the pandemic. We're talking about what to do with those buildings. So Susan, you, you know, you own a B or C building, as you call them, something that's reaching the end of its days and needs some work. What do you do with it now? What would be the, the right options? I was talking off the top about that building in Montreal built in the early 60s that they want to tra- transform into, into rentals. It seems like that might be a good approach. Yeah, and the conversation around conversions on building has has primarily been focused on residential because it solves two problems that a lot of downtowns are facing right now. Let's get rid of um, some functionally obsolete, unnecessary office space and bring in residents that can improve the vitality and support uh, the other activities and businesses going on so you can create a more complete, vibrant community. What I think of some of the office buildings, right, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, and it's, but residential is not the the only type of conversion we've seen out there. We've seen uh, office to post-secondary, we've seen office to uh, self-storage, to uh, vertical agriculture, to hotel. There's uh, many, many options being considered out there. We've also seen it to things like uh, services, museums, Uh, arts and culture. So cities are trying to figure out what do they need to fill in their network to create that complete downtown that they, they want and need. I guess it's going to take some imagination because often one looks at those sort of kind of very utilitarian buildings from the 70s. I've worked in more than a few. It's hard to reimagine them as something sort of beautiful, right? Uh, but I, I suppose that they are just space, right? They are four walls. And within those four walls, you can do lots of stuff. Yeah, and and oftentimes, and Calgary's the epicenter of this because they've been dealing with a chronic uh, long-term vacancy problem that started back in 2015. So they've had a lot longer to deal with this, to, you know, try to come up with ways to deal with this problem. So they've actually got uh, an incentive program in place to convert buildings. Their target is to take 6 million square feet of office buildings 
out and turn them into other uses. They're primarily targeting residential, but it's across the spectrum. You know, it's rental, it's social, it's student housing, seniors, market condos, you name it, right across the board. So we're, there's over 10 projects underway in Calgary with more being constantly considered for this because they know they have to get rid of these buildings. It's They, they just don't need them anymore as office space. So right. they're stripping these buildings right down to the absolute, you know, bare bones and, and starting over again. I guess you want to avoid creating sort of uh, deserts in your downtowns as well. I mean, that's part of the issue here, too. I know that there's concern over that. And then I was reading that there, you know, there's like 11.5 million square feet of office space still under construction in Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal right now. There is still, and that's part of the, it takes a long time to build a downtown building. It, it you know, not counting just the planning period, actually going into the ground, it's often five plus years. You know, because they've got to excavate all the way down, build up the parkade, and then it takes a long time to build the tower. So this is a bit of the hangover from when we still had those record low vacancies that we're still completing some of these buildings. So it'll be a while once these ones that are still underway finish before we see more. But there's, it's not those new buildings that we typically have to worry about because they're often pre-leased as part of their financing conditions in order to get built. It's those B and C buildings that the tenants are leaving behind. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, this must be one of the most more important real estate questions out there right now, what to do with all this space. And I guess we can look to places like Calgary, and Calgary mustn't be alone. There must be other examples around the world of cities trying to adapt their downtowns and some of those older buildings to this new reality that maybe, just maybe, no one wants them as office space anymore. Yeah, and we're seeing this, and there's cities in the U.S. that are looking to Calgary, by example. New York has a lot of these buildings underway. Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, San Francisco is obviously exploring this. It's possible here in Q2 as the numbers start to roll out, they may surpass downtown Calgary for vacancy. Theirs is up and going to be up in the 30% range as well. All of these cities are going, we have these old buildings we don't need anymore. What else can they be that would help our downtown? Well, Susan, thank you so much for your insight on this. It's a fascinating topic. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again. But I think anyone who lives in a downtown has noticed what's changed in the last few years. And uh, it's interesting that it is those specific buildings. Now that you mention it, absolutely, you notice it too. Those are the buildings that seem to have lost a lot of their foot traffic. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I, I, you don't like to divide people into camps in this world, but I really feel like this one is is there is a bit of a camp on this one. Do you pay attention, or how much attention do you pay to the best before dates on food products? Are you one of those people who absolutely will not consume something if its best before date has passed? Um, Or are you someone who sort of just plays it by ear? This has become a bit of a big issue of late, A, because of the price of food going up so much, and B, because of how much food is wasted because of those dates. Um, Again, are you someone who just tosses the stuff out the day that's stamped on the side of the packaging goes past? Well, always one to find humor in the mundane. Here's Jerry Seinfeld's take on the best before dates on milk. You ever have milk the day after the day? Scares the hell out of you, doesn't it? The spoon is trembling as it comes out of the bowl. It's after the day. I'm taking a big chance. I smell it. You smell it. What is it supposed to smell like? It smelled like milk to me. 
I don't know how they're so definite, though. Maybe the cows tip them off when they're milking them. July 3rd. Yeah, you get the point. Uh, for me, it really depends. I find milk is pretty accurate, but so many of the others seem so arbitrary. And that's because they are. A best before date is a label found, again, on packaged foods. And it's, it's really about when the product is expected to retain its optimal quality and taste. And that's determined by the manufacturer. It's not an indicator of safety, but rather a guide for consumers to know when the food is at its best. But for understandable reasons, a lot of people treat them like they were expiry dates. And that leads to unnecessary food waste, of course, both at home and stuff left on grocery store shelves, because invariably, I don't know how you shop, but I know lots of people who will reach behind to find the one whose who's best buy date is furthest away, right? So you leave those ones at the front of the shelves, invariably those get thrown away too. And that kind of waste is even less affordable these days with high food prices. So now a parliamentary committee in Ottawa has recommended that the federal government remove best before labels in an effort to reduce food waste and and also try and make a dent in those rising food costs. So is it necessary? Will it even work? Let me know what you think by best before about best before dates at 1877-399-9898. And I'll share those later. But will it work? Mike von Massow is a professor of food economics at the University of Guelph. He has his thoughts on this and he joins me now. Mike, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I mean, best before dates are something that it cause an awful lot of, I think they cause an awful lot of consternation within households as to exactly when is something no longer uh, good to eat. But where do they come from? When, when, do you have any idea of where they originated from? My understanding is it's a regulatory requirement, right. but but the problem we've run into is that it is probably the least well understood piece of information on food packaging. And, and that's saying something given how much information is on food packaging and how confusing a lot of it is. And so it came, it evolved uh, to uh, as a signal for when products were at its peak freshness, peak quality. It has nothing right. to do with food safety. It has nothing to do with, you know, when it falls off the face of the earth or Cinderella's coach yeah. turns into a pumpkin. It's just a signal of freshness and quality. Right. And how are they, I guess they're determined individually by the, by the person who produces the product or hands the product or whatever they're, that's their determined sort of, is it arbitrary? It's arbitrary. There's no there's no regulatory, you know, guideline as to what a best before date for different types of products. And you can see variation uh, between companies even. And, and, you know, as I said, the best before date is a date that says this product will be at its peak until this date. If a company is worried about reputational risk and managing your experience, they might even shorten it a couple of days before when it's still at its peak. It has nothing to do when it sort of falls off the edge of the earth and becomes inedible. Right. A cynic might even argue that they, they make them relatively short to cause us to, uh, to throw them out and buy more. A built-in redundancy, so to speak, as we do yes. with lots of different things. Clearly, there's a, there's a vast difference between a best before date and an expiry date, which we see on many products like milk, for instance, or or, or fresh fresh meat that we buy, for instance. Well, there there are there are very few products that actually have 
an expiry date. And really, I think there's a handful in Canada that are mandated to have an expiry date, one of which is baby formula. And so we make this we make this connection between best before and expiry dates in our head we don't differentiate between them as canadians to a significant degree on fresh meat there's always there's often a, a best before date and a packaged on date to give you a bit more information uh, milk uh, also has a best before date and not an expiry date and, and so we just make that connection to expiry in our head, particularly for products that we associate with going bad. Right. Products that really do have a shelf life, so to speak. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen a best before date on a bottle of water. Uh, and <laughs> So have I. Actually. That's always a good one. <laughs> which, which to me is sort of the ultimate ridiculousness. <laughs> But but even what you see on your milk is a best before date when it'll still be at its peak. It doesn't mean it's gone off after that. It might not be quite as nice. You, you talked about this causing consternation in many households. Yogurt is one in our household that, that's been an ongoing battle. <laughs> uh, my wife is in camp expiration date uh, so that once you've gone the next day on the calendar, that product should never be touched. Whereas I'm saying, look, A, it's it's usually just as nice beyond the expiry date, or sorry, the best before date. See, right. I fell into the same well, we trap. Well, we all fall into the same trap. That's the problem. I mean, you said earlier that there, I think a lot of people say this, they are so misunderstood. Um, it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of information on, as you mentioned, a ton of information on, on most food containers. And yet that's the one, that little simple date tells us, oh, that date's passed. I better I better not eat this. And that's a, uh, that's a it's an interesting psychological. Why haven't we done a better job, do you think? of informing consumers about what that date actually means. Well, I, th- I, th- I think the problem, Ben, we've gotten to is we've tried, but the horse has left the barn, frankly. And, and once that perception is ingrained in someone's head, it's really hard to overcome them. And I think, frankly, that's why we're getting to the point where we're saying perhaps it's best for us to move on from uh, best before dates. Right. Because the, the impetus behind that is that with food inflation and the fact that we we throw still throw away an awful lot of food, that uh, that in fact, we're sort of throwing good stuff away for no real reason. Well, you're exactly right. So I think the the first thing is we can stretch our budget if we don't throw stuff out that's still good to eat. The second thing is if we demand less because we're not throwing stuff out, uh, then prices will come down, e- economics 101. And the other thing is it, it can also put uh, downward pressure on prices in grocery stores because it's not just what we throw out when it goes past that date in our fridge. It's what we won't buy at the grocery store because it's, you know, the ridiculous thing is we'll often look at something and say it's got two or three days before it's best before date. So it's got two or three days of peak quality left, but we won't buy it. So it gets thrown out before the best before date in grocery stores. So I, I think that there, there's a real role uh, in this, both in stretching our food dollar and in perhaps bringing, bringing prices down. The other thing I think is worth thinking about is because many of us think of it as a, an expiration date, we use it as a signal for food safety. And, and frankly, it's safe often beyond the best before date and can be unsafe if we've opened it 
before the best before date. So, so not only are we misconstruing what it actually is, we're actually putting perceptions on it that aren't actually good from a food safety perspective. Right. I, I suppose we should just trust our trust our instincts, right? Trust your nose, trust your trust your everything about what you're opening to make sure it's okay. Just because it has it's before its best before date doesn't necessarily mean that it's perfect, right? Right, exactly right. You know, the rules of thumb are exactly what you said, Ben. Look at it, smell it. If you if you're suspicious, look at it, smell it. Usually it's fine. You know, you can you can tell when something isn't quite right. Mike von Massau is a professor of food economics at the University of Guelph. We're talking about the ever confusing best before dates on food. It's come up. Uh, there's been a parliamentary committee that's recommended perhaps getting rid of them or revisiting them somehow because they're widely misunderstood as sort of expiry dates, which they are not. There are very few food items, as Mike was pointing out, in this country that actually have expiry dates on them, meaning don't use it past this date. Almost everything else is just a best before. It's essentially a suggestion uh, or at least a determination by the, the seller itself or themselves. Uh, Mike, what about this idea of just getting rid of them? Would, would that work? I mean, it feels like the education might be better, but you're right. It, uh, that that uh, that ship has sailed, it seems. Well, yeah, I, I think that that we've been trying to to provide clarity and and I mean, you heard me earlier in the interview stumble over it and call it an expiration date. I think that 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 is so ingrained, it's going to be difficult to 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 overcome. Now, I'm sure there will be people who miss it, but to a degree, if it's not serving any positive purpose and is actually confusing people, I think it just makes sense to get rid of it. If we, you know, if we want to send quality signals you know, uh, maybe we should come up with a, this is this is the expected lifespan of this product and 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 actually do expiration dates. But I think for a most part, we won't suffer as Canadians for removing it. Uh, some it will take some adjustment and some adaptation, and you know we're we are change averse. My guess is some food processors will be uh, will be hesitant because. You know, to me, the biggest role of of the best before date is kind of an experience, an experience control, a brand, a brand management uh, issue. So if we have a best before date and people eat it beyond that and it's not perfect, we can say, look, you ate it beyond the best before date. We're not responsible and we'd really like you to eat it before so that you have the best possible experience. But but overall, frankly, we're, we're misinterpreting it and and it's not adding a lot of value. So why not move on? Right. I'm just thinking of the first time someone gets food poisoning or something along those lines after we take them off and it's all blamed on the fact that these dates aren't on there anymore. I mean, it seems like a real catch-22. Well, it does. Uh, I think the risk is relatively low uh, of someone getting food poisoning because they mistook the 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 how long they could eat something you're you're right there there will likely be some sort of incident say oh look uh, i didn't know there was no best before date on it and uh, and look what happened to me the, the the probability of that happening is relatively low and and maybe there's some merit on high risk products to think about what we might do differently but the truth is we have a profoundly safe food supply and and so the risk of food poisoning because someone ate something a little bit late is relatively low it's the the risk of having an unpleasant experience is higher right something that's gone off 
we've we've all made the mistake of having a sip of milk that's that's no longer perfect and oh, it indeed. tastes lousy and that yeah. sort of thing. I think that risk is higher than than poisoning. Yeah, I mean, it feels like this one uh, is. We're, we're trying to figure this one out just because food inflation has led us to try to look at ways of ways that we're wasting food unnecessarily. Speaking of, of of food, this is an interesting one. I gather because there's been a ton of articles about it right now. If you're a sriracha fan and you only like that one brand, Hoi Fong, that comes in that clear bottle with the rooster on it and the green top, you're out of luck. It's <laughs> they're selling it for like ninety two dollars for a two pack on Amazon. What's going on with this sriracha? The stuff used to be. Uh, dirt cheap. This is a perfect example of what we've talked about before, Ben, where extreme weather events are creating a shortage of of ingredients. Sriracha needs red jalapenos. It's been very dry in northern northern Mexico. It's been made worse by low water levels in the Colorado River, so they can't irrigate. So there's a shortage of these things, particularly for the Green Top leading brand. And so it's perfect uh, economics 101 lesson on on substitutes there are other sriracha quote unquote brands out there the the diehards fans of the of the leading brand say oh well it doesn't they don't taste as good or they taste different and so we're seeing the price of that one as you said i saw it for 41 dollars on amazon uh, go up and there are still regularly priced alternatives but because we are inflexible and brand loyal, uh, we see this extreme uh, price happening because of shortages. Yeah, it's remarkable because there are dozens of other brands out there. Uh, but well, I guess I guess because it's it was it was at one time kind of an unused exotic product, then it became quite a recognizable and much used product. But that one brand seems to have a real corner on it, and because that brand is in short supply, people are sort of struggling, thinking, "Well, I've only ever Sriracha to me is that brand. It's a bit like Kleenex, right? It's it's that well, brand or no brand at all." Well, and, and, and to a lesser degree, we have the same thing happens in ketchup. You know, we, we do have these sort of dominant brands, often the first ones on the marketplace that we just, that we just like. And, and, you know, to me, again, it's kind of a, a metaphor for the, for, for why we're feeling this food inflation so badly is our inability to one of the one of the ways we can buffer ourselves against these higher food prices is by saying well let's buy something else that's in season or that's cheaper but because if something's in our basket last week it's likely to be in our basket this week we're really susceptible to those price increases and sriracha is a perfect example i'm i'm thinking ben i've got a half a bottle of it in my uh in my fridge, I'm wondering if I can retire earlier. If I uh, if the if the <laughs> yeah. crop of three plants I have on my deck will will maybe uh, let me sell them and and make a windfall uh, on the jalapenos. Oh yeah, what what a, what a strange world we live in. Sometimes uh, there are many. It's been a gro- one of the growth industries around this is is articles telling you why the price has gone up and what the alternatives are. There are lots of them out there if you Google them. Uh, Mike, as always, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Found this study this morning, and I was—I found it jaw-dropping. A new study out of Britain uh, shows that a shocking number of adults in the UK have never boiled an egg, with over twenty-five percent having never attempted it, and twenty-five percent wouldn't know how to if they had to. Twenty-seven percent of UK adults surveyed in this 
for this uh, out of 4,000. So a thousand of them didn't know how to boil an egg and have never tried. Now, I don't know what that says about the state of state of cooking or not, but it seemed like it was an alarming part of this survey. It was done by the supermarket chain Waitrose. Uh, it's part of its annual cooking report. But wow, that's a lot of people who don't know how to boil an egg. I, I was caught off guard. And of course, as the cost of living crisis affects all of us, you know, a lot of people want to cook at home because it's a lot less expensive than eating out, for instance. This one also revealed that a fifth of people have never made a salad dressing, which is another inexpensive way to avoid having to buy that that product in the store. But it turns out that since the height of the pandemic, a lot of people found that not being able to cook was a bit of a detriment. And especially now with these high food prices, they're learning or they're, they're flocking, so to speak, to learn how to. And that's something that Jonathan Kinney is seeing right on the front lines. He's a culinary instructor and co-owner of Northwest Culinary Academy of Vancouver. And he joins me now. Jonathan, thanks so much. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, did it come as, I mean, it came as a real, so I, maybe, I suppose I'd never really thought about it, but it came as a surprise that 27% of Britons did not know how to boil an egg because it doesn't get much simpler than that. I, it, it's not, unfortunately, it's not surprising. And that's something that we found, especially pre-COVID, was, you know, we had people who would take our classes. I had one person who stood out really vividly and he said to me, I need to take this because I'm eating out 15 times a week. Now, if you wow. do the math, there's only 21 times that somebody can eat out in a week. So th- that, to me, that was, that was the eye-opener, is that not only are they not even attempting, they're just spending so much money. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it boils down to, right? I think a lot of people, yeah. uh, when everything was closed and ordering out was expensive and so on, that yeah. just being able to cook at home became a big deal. But yeah. now you're right, with food inflation, it must be changing people's attitudes towards just the necessity of being able to make a lot of that great stuff at home. Absolutely. And it's just, you look at how people during COVID, they had things like the sourdough challenge and they did things like that. And we're not talking about an easy loaf of bread. We're talking about a challenging, um, a challenging product. And so what we were finding was that as we came out of COVID, people just were banging down the doors. They just wanted to, to, to learn how to cook. And so much about cooking, it's, it's not like other hobbies. If, if I go and I do a pottery class and my mug isn't quite straight, nobody's criticizing me on that. But when I go and I make a meal, people are criticizing me for that. Now, whether they intend to or not, that's what, that's what I feel as somebody. So it's not really the same kind of hobby. But coming out of COVID, people started to really up their game with that. And then we started to see more and more of those people. Right. And of course, there's nothing quite as satisfying as making something yourself that tastes better than what you would have ordered in a restaurant, right? There's the satisfaction of that. So tell me about the people you saw showing up. I mean, when you say people, when you say basic, how basic are we talking? So we do um, one-night classes. They're they're two-hour classes. We do a lot of the prep, but it gets people sort of interested and something more than just going out for dinner and sitting across from each other in the table. We have couples that have never cooked before who are now standing side by side making a dish together. We did a paella class last night and we did, yeah, and we did the same thing. And you you have these people and, you know, maybe 75% of them never come and do a class again because they just did it for fun. But you get, we get constant people that are doing another one of these one night classes or they up themselves and they do our fundamentals classes. And those fundamentals classes are focused on, we start with how to hold and use a knife properly to make yourself more efficient in the kitchen. Because so much of this, 
80% of what you do has nothing to do with the stove. It has everything to do with your knife and your cutting board. Right, and the prep and so on. Exactly. The, the students that you see come in, when we, we go back, going back to the not being able to boil an egg, yeah. do you see, I mean, wherein, wherein lies the issue? Because, of course, I think a lot of yeah. us who grew, I grew up in the 70s. I was a kid in the sure. 70s. Me and, too. You know, Gen Xer. So, so ultimately, you kind of had, to, you know, we, we didn't have a microwave till I was in my teens. You yeah. kind of had to learn how to use, you, you kind of had to learn how to cook. Or yeah. there were times, that, you know, but where do you think the issue is now? Where, where is the learning not happening? I think the, it's the convenience I think that really there are so many options, especially when people live in a big city, that they don't have to cook. And people convince themselves that they don't have time to do it. And, you know, they have no problem sitting around doing nothing while they wait 45 minutes for their order, food order to show up. But they don't want to invest the time in um, going grocery shopping and making something that is something that they want to make, but they just don't feel like they can do it. And so that so so much of what we do is we try to break the stigma and it's so much is just encouraging people to do it. I mean, uh, you know, half of half of what we do is actually guidance counselor more than it is actually cooking instructor. Um, and, you know, right. for how, me, how so? Yeah. How so? How so? Well, because we, we spend a lot of time in we call it in the trenches, but with, you know, coaching people, you know, yes, you can do this. Um, no, hold your knife this way, or, you know, try and regulate your heat. This is, this is the sound and the smell that you're looking for. So it's not necessarily about following a recipe. It's about teaching people things that are going to allow them to move forward and build on the small amount of things that we're doing in class. And if we teach you to make a soup, we're teaching you a process that's going to help you make a hundred different soups. Right. I mean, there. I mean, it must open their eyes quite quickly to absolutely because because I, I guess what it boils down to, no pun intended, yeah. the egg <laughs> thing is that is that it's it's all a mystery until it yes. isn't right. It it all absolutely. where my food comes is as mysterious if you don't play an instrument to where my music yeah. comes from, right? Like exactly. how is a pad Thai made? It oh, it's yeah. it's mysterious. Well, it isn't really that mysterious. No, no, it's not. And you know, and I I I equate it to myself. Um, I am not mechanically gifted at all when it comes to my car. And if you asked me and you threw me under the car and asked me to change the oil, I would have zero idea. And I have no uh, affinity for that. But I've always had an affinity for food. And there's things that just come naturally to some people that don't come naturally to others. Our job is to make it as natural as possible to those people it is unnatural for. Right. So where do you begin? I mean, I, I, I'm yeah. picturing someone sort of showing up, staring at the stove like they've never sure. seen one before. I used to have a roommate that kept his shoes in the oven, right? Like yeah. that was, that's how often he used the, <laughs> used the kitchen. Um, yeah. You know, that, 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 you know, sort of showing up with, without a, even a concept of how to chop something sure. up. So I think that one of the biggest things, like I, I said, we, focusing on how do people, giving people the incentive to use their knife properly. But it's, you know, we actually offer a one night uh, knife skills class. And it's literally 90% of it is cutting. And at the end, you make yourself a soup, but it's not about making yourself a meal. It's about going through the process of knowing how to use your knife in all different, all different uh, types and occasions. So do I want to cut onions? Do I want to cut carrots? Do I want to cut zucchini? How am I going to, you know, what's the best way when I look at that product ingredient, how, how am I going to cut it the most efficiently? And to, to me, that's, that's, the, that's the place to start. It's not about staring at a recipe because, you know, more and more when you stare at a recipe, it's somebody's interpretation of how they cooked. Most often, 
It's not something, I mean, if, if I'm looking at something that Gordon Ramsay's written down, that's how Gordon Ramsay make it, makes it. That's not how, um, you know, a beginner cook should be looking at how they make it. And so for us, it's really about the fundamentals. And you know, when it comes to, you talk about boiling water, um, you know, just breaking it down to how do you boil an egg? You know, right. we have this debate. Are you, a, are you a put the egg in the water and bring it up to a boil person? Or are you get the water to boil and drop it in? Well, let's have those debates with the students. We talk about science and history and all these different things that really encourage people to move beyond just looking at what's on a sheet of paper. Jonathan Kinney is with us. He's a culinary instructor and co-owner of the Northwest Culinary Academy of Vancouver. It's all based on a study I saw today that came out of the UK, uh, where a thousand of the 4,000 people surveyed admitted to not knowing how to boil an egg. And I thought, wow, that's quite a statistic. But Jonathan's been saying that since the height of the pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of people showing up at his door, learning, wanting to learn just the basics of how to cook. So you, you talked about the knife skills. I guess there yep. has to be some some shopping skills as well. I mean, Absolutely. where do you begin when someone has no has never really done it before to say, okay, here are the basics. Here's what you need to yeah. learn first. I mean, the walk before you run, right? Well, and I think that absolutely shopping is is essential to this. And a lot of that is done sort of one-on-one. We don't, you know, we might talk about certain things on how to actually go and, you know, how are you going to purchase your piece of meat, developing a relationship with a butcher or a fishmonger or, or a green grocer or things like that. Um, but I also think too is really encouraging people to prepare ahead it's not about if you're going to have people over for dinner that you start cooking two hours before they get there because what you'll do is you'll spend most of your time in the kitchen not actually visiting with them. So we, we teach them little tips and tricks on uh, how to prep ahead, what you can do ahead of time to make your life a little bit easier. Right. And I, I guess also not to get discouraged, right? Because I remember, Absolutely. I mean, I really learned to cook trial trial and error yeah there was a lot there was a lot of error too that that went into it in fact i i spent some time just living alone with my dad and he had to learn how to cook and there was yeah. an awful lot of error in there too so Absolutely. being able to sort of pick yourself back up off the off the kitchen floor and start again yeah. is is probably pretty important too well and i think too is that as we're seeing people being more and more uh, enthusiastic about this it is just about it's fine if it doesn't work. It's, you know, and one of the things that we do is we try to teach people the whys and hows, the tells. If something doesn't work, then this is what to look for and to try and make an assessment. You know, people always ask us, and we get it every single class, how long do I cook it for and at what temperature? And we always say, generally, you're going to cook it at 350 degrees and you're going to cook it until it's done. Because, so our job is to help you understand when it's done. It's not about, because your oven is different than my oven. I can't right. say to you it's going to be done in 20 minutes because in your oven it'll probably be done in 25 or 27 or something like that. So for us, it's about what, what does it look like? What are the tells? Right. It's, it's te- I guess it's like teaching someone how to skate on any surface, right? As Absolutely. To, yeah. No, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I, and I, I sort of taught myself to cook, so and, and, and not particularly well, not bad, but not, not yeah. great. And you kind of learn as time goes on, you have your go-to recipes, right? Yeah. But I think if you can yeah. just make one thing well, everything kind of emerges from that because it's all essentially the same. It's chemistry, right? It's all the it same. It is chemistry. Process. Yeah. Ab- oh, absolutely. And that's the, the one thing, you know, one of our other um, COVID projects that came out of this is, is we wrote a book because oh. um, it was, and it, it, you know, we actually stamp right on the front of it. This is not a cookbook. There is literally one recipe in 300 pages because it is about the science, 
the history, the technique of cooking. So back to the boiling boiling an egg yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> Who yeah. won the argument? Because my wife wants to know. Because we talked oh, okay. about boiling eggs today. <laughs> so she's a put it in the put it in the pot, turn it on person. Yeah. Uh, what ended up being the? Is, I'm sure there's no correct way. But no, there is, is the, there what, is what no is the, correct way. What, but what is the better um, way? Seeing what that I'm the one way? who's on the radio, then I, my way is going to be the right way. <laughs> but that's going to be um, bring the bring the water to a simmer. Uh, drop the or not drop the egg in, but place the egg in, and then you set your timer seven minutes for a runny center, eight minutes for slightly firm, nine minutes for uh, a hard boiled egg. Right, and do you take and it out right go, away, or do you leave it yeah. leave it in the water? No, you take it out right away, and you place it in ice cold water. Aha. Aha, uh-huh. so yeah. not, put it at a simmer, nine minutes if you want it yeah. hard-boiled, yeah. and ice-cold water afterwards. Well, yeah. how interesting. Yeah. And you can, you can leave already. it in that ice-cold water overnight if you want. I mean, it's, it's really? just, if you, if, you don't, yeah, if you don't have time, you can just, you can just drop it in there and, and, and let it go. And it peels. I, in, in the last, since, since I've really been fighting this argument, uh, <laughs> the last three years, I've never had an egg that does not peel. Incredible, incredible. First thing you ever made, do you remember? Mine yeah, was I was eight years old and I made a cheesecake yeah. for my dad's birthday. A cheesecake? That was yes. the first thing you made? Wow. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, <laughs> it was terrible, by... but my dad loved it, so he, he, well, he put that's... on a good face. Well, that's, well, you know, if you if you scale Everest on the first thing as the first thing you do, that's pretty remarkable. It puts my uh, lumpy cream of wheat to shame. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Speaking of eating establishments, uh, you know, I love to dig up old commercials online. Have a listen to this one. Cluck, cluck. We asked what kind of soup customers wanted from Swiss Chalet. Chicken. Chicken. For the favorite entree, they were equally emphatic. Chicken. 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 Introducing the winter warm-up hearty soup with our famous chicken and plump noodles and our quarter chicken dinner. The winter warm-up special. Just $6.99. Dining room or takeout. Of course, a lot of people like our ribs, too. Always so good. So Right. Swiss Chalet from the 80s. You might be able to tell by the price, $6.99 at the time. Well, Swiss Chalet is one of the 150 restaurants my next guest has written about. It, of course, was opened in 1954 when a young man named Richard Moron came from came from Montreal, where his father owned Chalet Barbecue, and he opened uh, the first Chalet Barbecue, or sorry, the first Swiss Chalet Barbecue at 234 Bloor Street West in Toronto. The rest, of course, is history. A quarter chicken back then was a quarter, 25 cents, can you imagine? Uh, and all the other things that came along with it. And it is one of the many restaurants that she writes about uh, that shaped who we are and how we eat. It's probably the most, one of the biggest chain restaurants. There are a few chain restaurants in there. Um, But as it turns out, restaurants have a really long and storied history right across the country from the very utilitarian way they were back in the gold rush days and before Confederation to the luxury dining that developed early in the last century around the railways and those railway hotels. You think about the Chateau Frontenac in Quebec City, the Empress out here in Victoria and many others in between. And then the constantly evolving dining landscape in this country, specifically as new groups of immigrants arrived in Canada and brought a taste of home with them, often adapted somewhat 
to sell to their new to people in their new country. Now, my next guest again started to chart out more than 150 years of restaurant history in Canada across 150 restaurants in every province and territory. It reads like a history of changing habits, changing immigration patterns, patterns, world wars and other conflicts, the growth of big cities, the arrival of the car, shopping malls, haute cuisine, chain restaurants, you name it. As Gabby Payton puts it, the origin stories of our early restaurants and the latest hotspots all have a place in the Canadian historical compendium. Donairs, California rolls, ginger beef, Japa dogs, figgy duffs, smoked meat sandwiches. It goes on and on and on. We're all invented by those who came here looking for a new life. And she puts it all down in a new book, which includes some recipes at the end as well from famous places from now and back then. Gabby Payton is a food and travel writer. The book is called Where We Ate, A Field Guide to Canada's Restaurants Past and Present. And Gabby joins me now. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me a bit about the inspiration. I mean, it feels like this is a book that should have been written. Maybe it has been in some different guise in the past. But tell me about a bit by why, about why you sat down and thought this is a story that needs to be told. Well, really, it all kind of started when I was researching iconic Canadian foods for the food bloggers of Canada. I was researching donairs and poutine. And then by effect of that was looking at all those restaurants and the people that were opening them. And then I kind of became inspired by those stories and kind of wanted to track all those different waves of immigration, all those different cultural changes that were occurring. And so really, that's where it started for me. So tell me a bit about uh, Before Confederation, because that's where you begin. There are some restaurants in there. There are some places in there that are still open to this day, which which floored me. But tell me a bit about what, what they looked like, what an eatery looked like before Confederation. Well, back then, uh, really, eateries were very much utilitarian. They were really for just like getting a meal, getting in and getting out. In some instances, they might have been a community hub or that kind of thing. But really, it was just utilitarian. I need to eat something. I'm on the road or I work in the city and all those kind of things. So it was very much utilitarian. Right. And this is, I mean, work in the city before Confederation, because I gather it's a little more it's a little more rural than that. Right. Or it's a bit it's a bit more frontier than that, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, you could say, I mean, Montreal was probably, you know, a few streets, but I guess you would be kind of in the city in that area for sure on those cobblestone streets. But yeah, for the most part, like take King's Head in, for example, in Ontario before or Upper Canada, as we would have called it back then, on the side of the road, as people were conversing and traveling before the railways existed, they were, you know, that was the place where people would stop for the night, have a bite of food and keep on going on their way. Right. So you didn't book, make reservations or show up there for a, for a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a date, for instance. Definitely not. <laughs> and then and then we move on to Confederation and, and to 1910. And then we start to see a bit of a shift. Right. I mean, you notice that restaurants start to become more common and they start to take the shape of what we may recognize today as the modern restaurant. Yeah, for sure. As we get uh, keep on going through, we see the railway hotels, which are, you know, creating these beautiful dining spaces for people who are traveling, but also become a place where people are going to eat. Uh, and then also with the cities, we're seeing like, you know, a lot more people who are living in the cities as they be- are becoming bigger and bigger. Um, so we're seeing cafes and lots of different places like that, like take the Montreal pool room, which invented the steamy hot dog in Montreal. Right. I've been there. <laughs> I've been there many, many, many times. That's a little bit, that's, I guess that's a little bit later, right? So if, if, if but in Confederation to 10, I guess we're sort of seeing, seeing kind of that, what we know is the Grand Dining. Uh, by 1910, you also mentioned that Sing Tom's Cafe opens in Toronto, and that's kind of a big shift as well. 
Absolutely, because that was actually the first Chinese restaurant in Canada. Uh, it opened up, which it would have then been Chinatown, so or otherwise known as the Ward. Uh, and so that's where like a lot of Chinese people lived and ate, and that's where the restaurant was the first one. Clearly, this would have been the first time that many people living here at the time would have had experiences with that kind of food. Uh, how did that happen? How did that work? When did people start to venture away from what they would have been used to eating at home to eating things that they would have never seen before? Because that's a huge shift, and it's one that continues to this day. Absolutely. I mean, well, if you think about Chinese food, for example, you know, from the 1910s, 20s and 30s, there were Chinese restaurants in the major cities. So like Vancouver and Toronto and probably Montreal would have had a Chinese restaurant. For the most part, they were not feeding locals or Canadians. They were feeding other Chinese people. But once the Chinese Exclusion Act ended in the 40s, we saw this explosion of Chinese food and an explosion of all over the country. So now, I mean, there is a Chinese food restaurant in every single tiny town across Canada. And so that really kind of skyrocketed once the Exclusion Act ended, because prior to that, you know, a lot of Chinese people weren't allowed to own businesses or they weren't allowed to work. Right. And, and and when you when you start to then move into the 20s and the 30s, then we start to see some of those iconic names start to pop up. Right. So how did you make the selection for because obviously early on, there aren't that many restaurants to choose from. But as we start to get in to the 20s and the 30s, it starts to become a fairly popular thing to do. So how did you start going about trying to figure out what restaurants were going to be included in those in those decades? And what story do they tell? It was probably the hardest thing was narrowing down the 150 restaurants in the book. I think initially I had 400 restaurants on my list (laughs) um, because I really wanted to include as many different cultural backgrounds, you know, different types of restaurants. And I really wanted one from every province and territory. I mean, I think the 20s and 30s in particular were very difficult because that really was like, especially in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, as they were like exploding in size. Then there were so many more different kind of cafes from people who were we're opening them from all over the world. Um, so really, it kind of came down to like kind of I actually chatted with food writers and other historians about what they thought in their city was kind of like the really iconic ones. So that really helped me narrow down, especially in the 20s and 30s chapters. Yeah. What are we seeing happen then? Because I mean, clearly Montreal tells a story. You have some Schwartz's opens, uh, Moishe's opens soon after. These are stories of Romanian immigrants, uh, a Jewish diaspora that came to Montreal that really sort of sort of shaped that whole culinary scene that we understand to be sort of deli and the steakhouse back then. Uh, but it's happening all over the country. There are different immigrant groups coming in. You, got, you have a, a Finnish cafe in Thunder Bay, right? Uh, and you have a recipe for Finnish pancakes in there. We're seeing sort of the evolution of the face of Canada sort of displayed in the kind of restaurants that we're seeing in many of its, especially its bigger cities. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like you said about Montreal, Ashkenazi and Romanian, Mm -hmm. Eastern European Jews, there was a huge influx of them to the Eastern seaboard. So New York, Montreal, Toronto in the 20s and 30s. Um, So like that was like, you know, and some of them are still open today. Like a lot of them are still open today, Uh, you know, so they have like kind of overcome the decades and all the challenges that go along with that. But yeah, I mean, Schwartz's in particular, it actually wasn't the first place to have a Montreal smoked meat sandwich. There is some dispute over who the first one was for sure. Ben's is probably one of the ones that's probably the most recognizable who was one of the first ones. Um, But, you know, Schwartz's helped to popularize that dish. And, you know, they have kind of the ones that have withstanded the test of time. Yeah, Ben's uh, is sadly long gone, uh, right near McGill. I think a lot of anyone who went to that university would have eaten there at some point <laughs> if they went there long ago, long enough ago. I was interested to see that a salad bar opened in the 1930s because I didn't think we were there yet. 
Oh man, that one. And as soon as I found out about that one, I actually had uh, interviewed a, a master's student who was at Miguel and, and he kind of had hinted me on to that person, uh, Jeanne Benoit, who is a, like a very famous yes, Quebecois. Famous Quebecois. Yes, cook, of course. Which I, I've known her just, you know, from her TV, she was on CBC and I've known her from, you know, her radios and television stuff, but I did not know her to have opened a salad bar. So yeah, it was one of the first vegetarian restaurants that existed in Canada. Gabby Payton is a food and travel writer. Her book is called Where We Ate, A Field Guide to Canada's Restaurants, Past and Present. Uh, Gabby, we move into the 50s and clearly things start to change because along comes the car, along comes the suburbs, along comes the shopping mall and the food court. And you sort of look into all these things. Where did those things start to pop up in your mind in this book as we head into, you know, that that post-war era? After the war, there's this giant economic boom. You know, we're seeing like a lot more restaurants, a lot more people have money that they can spend outside of just like, you know, maintaining their daily life. Um, we're seeing a lot of influx of pizza. Pizza arrives on the scene in the 50s and the 60s, which, you know, uh, there was a lot of anti-Italian sentiment throughout the war. But so really it was after that, that we're seeing all these pizza shops, all these Chinese restaurants, you know, they're, and they're expanding, like you said, outside into the suburbs. And we're seeing a lot more diversity all over the country in what we're eating. Yeah, and some of those big names that we now know, like White Spot and uh, out, out here, out west, uh, Boston Pizza, um, Mary Brown's, a few of those big chains start to come along at that point, too. How does that happen? Well, it's actually fascinating. Boston Pizza was actually founded by a Greek immigrant. <laughs> um, and that is something actually that was really shocked me uh, throughout my research was like the contribution to Greek immigrants or Greek immigrants that they had on the dining scene. I mean, they invented Hawaiian pizza in the 60s at the Satellite Diner. They invented the Donair. They invented, you know, and Boston Pizza was founded by a Greek immigrant. In the 70s, you, you talk about Sherway Gardens, and, and ironically, I had, a, I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Etobicoke, not far from Sherway, so I'm intimately familiar with Sherway Gardens, <laughs> and I didn't realize that their food court was a bit of a trailblazer. It was the first food court which in a mall, which like blew my mind when I found the article about this and then delved into it a little bit more. Uh, it was something that really blew my mind because I totally had kind of pinned it as an American phenomenon. And while, you know, the guy who did invent it, uh, landscape architect George Chinaka and another guy, James Rouse, you know, they were inspired by the American strip mall and American malls. They were the ones who were really foundational in developing that food court. Yeah, it's one of the many great stories. In here. And then we move into, I mean, this is in the 70s. You end up with Kensington Patty Palace, which is a great uh, West Indian patty place that's, I think, still there in Kensington Market. Uh, Donaire comes to Halifax, which is a big deal. Then in the 80s, we get sort of uh, the Tojo, you know, sushi. And then, well, sushi's been around for a while in Canada already. But we start to get some some developments. We start to see those what we consider to be iconic Canadian foods. Those are all relatively recent, as far as I can tell. Yeah, exactly. Like Tojo's, like you mentioned, um, he invented the California roll in the 70s, which is actually really interesting how he came about to developing it. Because really, we only really had sushi in Canada, probably in the 60s, Aki restaurant, which I talk about in, in the 60s chapter. But really, it was a very small population that were eating that. So Tojo kind of saw this opportunity to kind of expand people's horizons a little bit. Um, and so instead of making sushi maki rolls, like kind of how everyone had been doing it, he put the rice on the outside and kind of hid the raw seafood on the inside uh, and made it more appealing. And then it really kind of took off from there. Right. And interestingly, he called it the California roll because really the only people in Vancouver at the time who were eating sushi were people from L.A. <laughs> 
Right. Well, there you go. That's that's good to know. And then as we head in head into the modern day, we start to sort of see the kind of the restaurant like Toke in Montreal, which is sort of those plates where if you're hungry, don't bother. Right. It's like little pieces of food. It's all very artistic. And then things like the banh mi come along that I think lots of people. I mean, I, I think anybody who lives in a big city and, and and elsewhere too will notice that if you know if you've lived long enough, just how immigration patterns have consistently recreated the food seed in each and every city, whether it be fast food or fine dining. Absolutely. Yeah. Like you mentioned Bami. I mean, in Calgary in the 90s, Calgary and Bami are pretty synonymous right now. Like there are so many different, there's even like a drive-through Bami shop you can go to in Calgary. So I think like, you know, it's now very commonplace to go stroll around the corner and get Bami, but in the 90s, they didn't exist. So as you're seeing, you know, waves of immigration post the Vietnam War, you're seeing more and more Vietnamese, Cambodian, you know, those kind of uh, waves of immigration, then you're seeing more of those foods in our places. You included recipes in there, too, because there's a nice line at the beginning that sort of talks about uh, about nostalgia and how if you want to, you know, watch an old movie, you always can. If you want to listen to an old track, you always can. In fact, almost everything you can sort of recreate. It'll never quite be the same. But when a restaurant disappears, its menu goes along with it and those dishes disappear as well. So you tried to include some recipes in there in case anyone wants to try this out at home. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I reached out to a bunch of different restaurants just to kind of get an idea of like, you know, what, what they felt would be a dish that would kind of either, yes, be nostalgic to their, you know, to patrons or someone who had never been there would epitomize their, you know, their dishes. So, you know, take Primal in Saskatchewan, for example, they have a beef heart bolognese, you know, that's not necessarily something that you're making on a regular basis, but you know, no. you can go to the butcher, <laughs> you can go to the butcher and grab that beef heart, uh, you know, and try something new. It's a great, it's a great uh, recipe for a crowd. Yeah, you have doner sauce in there too. I noticed. Oh yes, the do- I I was pretty adamant about including the doner sauce because on the East Coast it's like you know it's pretty controversial among pizza shops whether you're including the garlic powder or not. Uh-huh. Uh, so I wanted to have that in there. Yeah, I have a friend of mine. Uh, his family ran a pizza shop uh, just outside Halifax, actually, and he was adamant that they never put it in there. But huh. inside Halifax, in the more urban centers, they always put garlic powder in. So it's really interesting. Interesting. You have that. You have that urban rural divide. Even when it comes yeah. to so what story does it tell? I mean, you look back. You look at this book. You look at the 150 restaurants you chose. What, what do you think it says about this country? For me, I really, when I was thinking about Canadian cuisine and what that meant, and I think for a long time, people have always looked at it from kind of like a home cook aspect or a cookbook aspect. And for me, so much of our food that we consider to be iconically Canadian is restaurant food. And, you know, and I think that multiculturalism and that really kind of diverse diaspora of different people from all over the world coming here and, you know, adapting different dishes to make them Canadian is something that's like really special. and doesn't really exist anywhere else. So I, you know, I was really passionate about that when I was doing the research. Well, the book is called Where We Ate or Where We're Eating, because a lot of these restaurants are actually not not all, (laughs) but a lot of these restaurants are actually still around if you choose to check them out. A field guide to Canada's restaurants past and present. Gabby Payton, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Say, Marty! Marty! Marty, I wanted to show you these new matchbooks for my auto detailing I had printed up. Mike DeLorean? 
Wow. A flying DeLorean. Of course, flying cars, that's a scene from Back to the Future 2, if you didn't recognize it. Uh, flying cars have long been the stuff of science fiction. I grew up watching the Jetsons, obviously. Uh, in Back to the Future 2, they only jump ahead to 2015, and they're already apparently part of the landscape. Well, 2015 has come and gone, and vehicles are still very much grounded these days, but perhaps not for much longer. A flying car company in the U.S. has received special airworthiness certification from the Federal Aviation Administration. California-based aeronautics company called Aleph received the certification, allowing it to fly the car in limited locations for testing. The company's Armada Model Zero aircraft received the certification on June the 12th, the FAA told CBS recently. Now, Aleph Aeronautics says it's working on a car that will be street legal, with vertical takeoff and landing capabilities, also also drivable on public roads and parkable like a normal car. We wanted to, to know more about it. And Jim Duchovny is the founder and CEO of Aleph Aeronautics, and he joins me now. Jim, thank you so much. Thanks, man. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. This, I mean, I've seen you. You've been talking about this nonstop for days now. So I hope I don't ask you all the same questions. But the FAA certification. Just tell me what that means in terms of what you're going to be able to do now to advance this project. Sure. So um, that allows us to fly. That allows us to fly tests pretty openly. Uh, moreover, what's important, the uh, as you correctly mentioned, it's a very limited area which we receive permission to fly. It's close to our headquarters in Silicon Valley in Bay Area. So this is a huge deal. But what is more important, it allows us to do exhibition, which means we now can actually show it to the public and to the media, which we are preparing to do. Tell me a bit about the Armada Model Zero. I gather that it is carbon fiber and aluminum, so it's it's it, but it's very light. But tell me a bit about just what the car looks like and how it's built. Right. I usually have a hard time explaining it on the radio because I yes. usually gesture yes. with my hands. Yes, I usually yes, gesture I... with my hands and explain how it's supposed to look like. Right. So imagine a car, imagine a regular car, and then you take away uh, the front uh, in front of the cabin and the back behind the cabin. In that space which is left, that, uh, so you, when you take an engine, you put four smaller engines and four wheels, right? So this right. is what makes it right. Now you have empty space in front and the back. In that space, you put what is called DEP, distributed electric propulsion, which means eight uh, propeller motor speed controller systems. This is kind of like a, imagine eight helicopters, right? Mm -hmm. This is what gets you up our vertical takeoff, but you need an airflow. So another thing you have to do is the top of the car, you create a mesh, which means on one hand, it looks solid. On the other hand, you see, uh, the air, uh, airflow can come through, something like a checker pattern, right? So right. these three things allow for driving as a regular car, should look like a regular car, should drive like a regular car, should park in a regular car spaces, and the vertical takeoff. But this is not the end of the story because this is why we did not have flying cars for 100 years. It's very inefficient. Um, this particular design will burn through the best battery in the world very fast, and it will not be an efficient car. What we came up with another way of forward flying, which we call a biplane mode. So car turns on its side, which means your uh, passenger side becomes a bottom wing and your driver's side becomes the top wing while the driver and the cabin actually is gimbaled and stay absolutely perfect. This way you have a very efficient flight with actually two wings um, and you have like a pretty good range over 100 miles. 
Right. I, I actually watched the, there's sort of a, an animation out there of it and it sort of, it lifts off a little bit like a drone sort of, sort of comes right up and then it kind of flips, it, it sort of rotates forward a little bit, almost like if you had, a, I'm trying to fi- think of a perfect example, but if you took your, your, your mobile phone and it was lying flat like a car and then you picked it up and then turned it forward and faced the screen towards you, that's a bit what it looks like when it starts to move, I think. I know it's tough. It's tough to describe what it's, what exactly it's going to look like, but in terms of what it's built for, so I gather it's one or two occupants because the payload's not huge, right? It's a pretty small vehicle and it doesn't go too, too fast on the road. So, I mean, it basically it's meant to do, it's like a touring vehicle, right? In many ways. Um, so there is a short-term uh, vision and a long-term vision. Long-term vision, okay. it should be absolutely exactly the same as any car which you have today, Tesla, Toyota, or uh, Ford or anything like that. Uh, on the ground and in the air, it should be as efficient as uh, any airplane or helicopter. Um, the what you read about the speed limit is because in order to make a certification simpler, we're right. uh, certifying it as a low speed vehicle. Think about golf car, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the legal limit, not the technical limit. So it's a legal limit of uh, in the US. It's oh, I get you. 20, okay, that makes sense. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right, about 25, 35 miles per hour. And um, if you need to go faster, you fly. Actually, this solution to go fast. Um, towards the market, towards the people was suggested by one of the founders of Tesla for us. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, obviously, what you want to do is test it out as fast as you can, right? That's the point. You don't want to sort of build the finished product, then work on it. You want to go in, in step by step, right? Um, Correct. We received me... so many, right. We received so many yeah. products. We received so many people are asking when. So we try to get it as fast as possible to people, especially to people who already place pre-orders. And we have a number of investors who are also keep asking us like uh, when and when. So we want to go through the legal to make sure we can get something basic so people can start using it today and then get to the full uh, functionality as we want to. Right. I should point out, I mean, it, it, is, it is an EV, right? I mean, that's everything everyone understands that by now, but it is an EV. Tell me a bit about, we've been talking about this. I heard you in another interview because you were asked, you've been asked all these questions. Uh, we've been talking about flying cars for so long and many sort of, I think if you went back 50, 60, 70 years, people predicted they were going to happen much faster than they did. What have been the barriers and how, how have you attempted to get around them? Right. So there have been flying cars from attempts from before Henry Ford and the real flying cars um, like Henry Ford tried to do it, like uh, famous Paul Miller, uh, Tara Fuji did a lot. Uh, the main issue before was um, we didn't have software the way we have right now. So software allows for great control. First of all, for great control of the vehicle. Second of all, for the development, right? Because we test all the airflows uh, before we actually start building anything. Second of all is a micro um, microcontrollers, which you can place, which can allow also for the perfect uh, way of flying. Uh, materials, 3D printing, a lot of technology did not exist before. And as I mentioned, this turning on the side, which we call transition, is also um, very important because there is a reason we didn't have flying cars for 100 years. It was not efficient, was not enough energy density, or yes, in the state of batteries today. So all of that came together in the right time. It was just physically impossible to do before. Right. I, you know, I, I think a lot of us picture flying cars. We sort of, you know, I, if you think about the Jetsons, you, you couldn't quite picture how the thing actually flew, right? In this case, uh, you don't see propellers, right? Like you don't see anything on the actual vehicle in that, in that uh, animation that you have. You don't see anything that makes it look like... It, it has propellers on it, but so what is what generates the lift and what allows it to stay aloft? 
Right. This is exactly what I said. So uh, remember, I was explaining D, explaining DEP, distributed electric propulsion. So right. inside, inside the car, in the front or the back of the cabin, there is eight propeller, speed control, okay. and motor systems. This is kind of imagine. It's a horrible analogy because that's what people think, but it's actually not correct. Uh, imagine a drone. A drone with eight propellers. Right. This is what gets you lift up. And again, the top is a mesh, so it allows the airflow. So it's not so, it looks solid if you look from the um, straight. But if you look from the top, it's completely not solid, right? Okay, so you can it. see actually through. So How about inside? Yeah. I understand there are uh, avionic systems, uh, all the sorts of things you would need to be above ground uh, that, that are built into it, as well as the usual stuff you'd expect in, a, in an automobile. Right, right. So again, as I'm describing it, and especially on the radio, on the radio, it sounds simple. It's incredibly, incredibly complex. Um, we have absolutely my genius co-founders, uh, Konstantin Kisly, Oleg Petrov, and Pavel Markin. They're the technical people who came, who took something I drew on a napkin in a coffee shop and created the real thing. It's right. unbelievable complex yeah unbelievably complex there is a lot of as you as you correctly said avionics we every day we have to innovate and solve problems which nobody solved before we're talking flying cars this half hour. A California-based aeronautics company called Aleph has received certification from the FAA to fly the car in limited locations. Jim DeCovney is the founder and CEO, and he's with us. Uh, Jim, I guess behind the scenes, I mean, obviously there's a lot of questions about how this will work in practice, but I guess behind the scenes, the FAA is working on trying to make this happen in terms of rules, certification, what kind of license you need, how how lanes would work, all of the, all of the complexities that lie behind having this kind of vehicle vehicle on the roads. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If I have more than their helps full and I usually praise them because they actually moving way faster than anybody expected. Um, they're creating what's called highways in the sky. Um, they're working through the system. They're creating the system. They're expecting the right thing from everybody. So it should, again, I usually don't communicate. They try to not to say numbers, but they're moving faster than people think, and uh, it should be here uh, pretty soon, at least the right. system to handle all of this. Right. In terms of where you go now with this, clearly you're able now to test, which is uh, which will be interesting to watch. What, where do you go step by step here? What, what do you need to do next? Right. So first, there's a lot of uh, testing going on. Then we need to figure out uh, different jurisdictions when we can actually start um maybe outside the US. And to my surprise, one of our investors is actually from Canada. Canada uh, looks like probably a first market in the way we may go to, just yeah. because of the jurisdiction uh, of Canada for the ultralight and some other um, some other ways it allows uh, us to easily fly. Tell me a bit about just, I mean, all the inevitable questions you'll get. I've heard you ask these questions already about, you know, what if the battery fails? What happens? You know, uh, in, in, in air, clearly you have to build a lot of redundancies into this kind of vehicle to make sure that it's both, uh, you know, roadworthy and airworthy. Right. So uh, you're absolutely right. So one of the thing is we have a lot of redundancies within the system. I described just one of them, uh, DEP, right, distributed electric mm -hmm. propulsion. There are other systems which we have, like elevons and so on. So amount of redundancy which we have in certain systems is way higher than um, most airplanes and helicopters, right? So it's, it is a much safer vehicle. 
on top of that, we're utilizing the fact that we're very light. That means that you can have like actually a full vehicle parachute, which can be uh, very quickly deployed. Again, this is this is something which probably never going to happen. But um, within the systems and be, uh, between the systems, there is a lot of redundancy. Even if one system completely goes wrong, we have another systems. And FAA is very strict uh, on this. So by the time we're going to get, uh, and Canadian Authority, I'm sure too, and uh, yes, and Europe also, by the time we're going to get there, um, you're pretty much going to be sure it's, as at least as safe as driving your Tesla and probably more safer. Right. Uh, Jim, how do you see this being used? Uh, in, in your mind's eye, in the company's mind's eye, what does this, how do you see it being used? I mean, who would use it and what they, would they do with it? Would you use it sort of, would you suddenly lift out of a traffic jam? I guess not everyone can do that at once. But what do you see it early on as sort of the ideal user for this? Right. So there is, again, as you correctly said, early on, and there is a long-term vision. So long-term vision, that should be your commute vehicle. That should replace your regular sedan. That's that's what we're going for, and this is what we do. Everything we do for the short term is actually with an eye on the long term. On the short term, I think it would be much easier to use it on semi-rural areas, right? Um, in Silicon Valley, we have something like this, uh, where you would commute, where you actually have an opposite scenario, right? It's not where you have like roads with a huge traffic. It's where you don't have enough roads and you don't have enough, um, a, a great uh, kind of a commute infrastructure. So it's going to be the, probably early on, it may be like the opposite scenario, the lack of infrastructure, not infrastructure, which is overcrowded. That makes sense. You have uh, more than 400 pre-orders, I understand, already. It's selling, I guess, at this point. The other thing, there's the short-term price, and I know there's a long-term price. Right now, 300000 US, um, and long-term, you're trying to make that much more, clearly, much more affordable. Yes. So, the idea, again, even when we started from the napkin in the coffee shop, the idea was to make it uh, affordable for everybody. And the price should be as the price of your regular Toyota Corolla, Ford Focus, or something like that. Now, to get there, we need volume, automation, efficient manufacturing. All of it is going to take time. So initially, the cost is high, hence the price is high. Hopefully, as we're going to go forward, we're going to increase the volume. Uh, we're going to increase the automation. Hopefully, we can get somewhere close to the original goal. When might we see a first liftoff, just even of, of, a, of a prototype and in testing? When might that happen, do you think? <clears throat> four years ago. <laughs> four years um, ago. So it's already, it's already done. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we, in uh, certain environments, again, making sure we're like not breaking any rules in certain environments, uh, we did driving lift off um, starting about four years ago. Now that with this certification, it makes it much easier to actually test in um, open fields, in the close to our uh, headquarters in Silicon Valley and do exhibitions, right? So it's now much easier. That being said, in a limited capacity, we already did it. And after the certification, also, we already done it. Well, Jim, thanks so much for filling us in on this. We'll be, uh, we'll be watching. I think a lot of people will be watching this to see how it progresses. Thanks, Ben. So the, uh, a couple of things to mention. One, yeah. the pre-orders are still open. Yeah. Um, the investment opportunities are still open. Um, and we'll love to hear from you guys. Always. There you go. And if you come this way first, let us know. We'll, we'll have you back on. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you, man. It's not my fault. 
stupid Mexican ozone. No, the Mexican ozone isn't stupid, Lila. You just needed to wear some sunscreen. I was trying to get a tan. No, you were trying to get savage. Whose side are you on, Eddie? What? What sides are there? Mine are the ozones. Choose one. <laughs> right. A scene from The Heartbreak Kid with Ben Stiller and Malin Ackerman there back from 2006, I think. I was looking around for something that said sunscreen, and that one popped up. Just an example of not respecting the power of the sun, right? Whether it be in a tropical setting or not. I think any of us who've been away in the dead of winter, especially if you live in a particularly cold place and you found yourself in a particularly sunny, hot place right away, the chances of getting sunburned as uh, she does in that, in that scene are pretty intense. But, you know, here at home, the summer sunshine and the heat is with us once again. Now, you should always be cognizant of UV rays and so on, and of the sun. But this time of year, it's always a good time for a refresher on how to use sunscreen. Now, being a Gen Xer myself, I wasn't really part of that generation of kids who were slathered with this stuff. I mean, full awareness of the dangers and so on, that would only come a little later. I had my little hat and stuff like that, and, you know, I got the odd sunburn here and there. But it wasn't nearly as sort of, uh, I wouldn't call it obsessive, but at least as as acutely aware as parents are and have been for quite a while now at this point. So basically, I grew up with a pretty lax approach to sunscreen. You know, buy some, don't pay too much attention to it or to the SPF. Uh, keep it, right? Keep it till you run out. So it doesn't go bad, does it? Does it? Well, of course it does, or it doesn't go bad, but it loses some of its power over time. Uh, we all make mistakes when it comes to sunscreen. We all fall prey to myths, both surrounding, uh, you know, myths around how to use it, myths around the marketing of it obviously, because there's a lot of options out there these days. It seems like there's SPF and absolutely everything these days. So we thought we would try and demystify some of this for everyone and get some good advice at the same time. Of course, it's about far more than avoiding a sunburn. Melanoma is one of the fastest growing cancers worldwide in this country. Incidences have more than tripled in the last 30 years. They continue to rise. And of course, uh, more than 1,300 Canadians will die from melanoma each year. So it is also a serious issue. Dr. Lisa Collette is a dermatologist at DLK on Avenue in Toronto, and she joins us now. Dr. Collette, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, this time of year, it's always worth the reminder. We were talking about swimming and boating yesterday. We're going to talk about the ever-important sunscreen tonight. There are some real myths and mistakes that everyone makes every single year. I make them myself. What are some of the most common ones? Uh, SPF could be a little confusing, I find. Yeah, so uh, let's just start with uh, when you should when you should use it. Sure. Uh, one of the myths is that when it's cloudy, you don't need to use it. When, in fact, we know that ultraviolet radiation can indeed come through cloud and be significant. So remember that even on a cloudy day, you still need to apply sunscreen. That makes sense. And in terms of what sunscreen you should apply, because I, I feel like there's this idea, again, that, that you know the stronger, the better. But I gather that's not necessarily the case, that it's not, you know, you don't need a 60 necessarily, uh, but you just need to, to apply it properly. That's correct. So if you go to the drugstore, for example, and get an SPF of 30 or higher, and you're looking for UVA and UVB protection, and that should grant you um, enough protection. The other thing to make sure is that if you are going um, to purchase a product, make sure you do go to the drugstore because the products in the drugstore will either have a drug identification number called a DIN on it, or natural products number, an NPN number. So you know that if you go to a drugstore, those products have been approved by Health Canada. Uh, the issue is using products that were, are not approved by Health Canada. So if you go to the drugstore, you're pretty safe. 
Right. And, and how about application? Because I gather that that gets a bit tricky, too. How much should you apply? I gather it's something like a, a teaspoon if you're just doing your face and, and a bit more if you're doing sort of if you're out of the beach or something, obviously. Right. So, you know, the rule of thumb that we use is a shot glass for the body. If you are swimming or sweating, you do have to reapply. Uh, and indeed, also look for sunscreens that are cosmetically acceptable. So there are lots of vehicles available now for, for sun protection lotions. There are also some sprays and SPF sticks. So there are lots of options. Um, A little tip that I'm going to pass along is that in hair bearing areas, so men, for example, they tend to like sunscreens that are sprays that are alcohol based because it's not so nice to put a cream on a hairy area. Uh, So that usually increases compliance And as well, the alcohol-based sunscreens are good for people who are prone to breakouts. And they can use that as well. And then another myth is that the sunscreen that you use, there's one sunscreen for face and one for body. And indeed, you can use the same sunscreen both on the face and body. Right. One of the issues that everyone runs into, of course, here we are, it's July, it's hot again, the sun's out. And I know you should be using it year round, but people tend to really think of it, uh, particularly in the summer. So you go dig into your basket of stuff that you put away last year and you think, oh, look, I do already, I don't need to buy a new sunscreen. I already have some and it's a little expensive. So I'll just keep this one that I bought, you know, in 2018 or something. That apparently is a no-no. Well, the, the, we know that the potency, so the, what happens is that the manufacturers will test the integrity of the product at that given date. Uh, so what I would tell people is, of course, it, it, it's best to have one that is that is new. But if you don't have a new one, the one that you have, is, is which is might be expired, is better than nothing at all. Right. So you can still use it, in other words, if you don't, you don't need to r- run to the pharmacy to buy something else. Right. It just might not be as as potent. Uh, and also the the ingredients start to break down. So really the best thing is to, is to buy a fresh one. But if it's between doing nothing and an expired product, you're probably better off applying something rather than nothing at all. Now, obviously, you know, those who are in the uh, sun t- on, in the sunscreen business have many, many inventive ways to get us to part with our money. Uh, are you saying that, that this if you buy the facial stuff versus the the other stuff, there's not really, you don't really need to buy two different sunscreens. Is that right? That, that's exactly it. If, if cost is an issue, I'd rather people get a sunscreen and apply, for example, the one that they're putting on their body to the face. Often the ingredients are the same. So you can indeed use the same product on the face and the body. What about the spray ones? Because those are awfully popular. You just mentioned them. Uh, I gather the only issue sometimes with the spray one is just, spray ones is just proper application. Right. And application is always an issue regardless of what you're using. So often with the sprays, what I'll tell my patients to do is to spray it like on their hands and then rub it in. Of course, if you're using, you know, a a clear sunblock spray on the face, you want to apply it to your hands first and then put on your face. You don't want to spray around your eyes for obvious reasons. Uh, And then, you know, another tip for men is uh, one of the more common places in males for basal cell carcinoma would be the back of the neck and behind the ears. Typically, if you're wearing, for example, a baseball hat, obviously they're not protected by that. So, you know, always to remember to apply sunscreen on those areas. 
and then for women, one of the most common places for malignant melanoma, which is one of the more deadly forms of skin cancer, is the back of the leg. Uh, really? Indeed, during yeah. the summer, for example, let's say you're going for a coffee, you might apply sunscreen to your face, but you'll forget you're wearing a skirt or shorts and you'll forget to apply sunscreens to the, the back of your legs. So just uh, another tip to make sure you cover that area as well. Yeah. I, I, and of course, because this is about more than just avoiding a sunburn, right? There are some long-term skin issues. We know this now. It's well documented. We talk about it a lot, but it is often forgotten in one's day-to-day bustle, right? Right. And, you know, you know, most people know that, you know, if you do protect your skin from the sun, from an anti-aging view, point of view, um, you'll be better off. But one of the things that we worry about most as dermatologists is um, the rise in incidence of skin cancer, uh, both um, non-life-threatening, but also malignant melanoma, which is which can be life-threatening. When we look at, there's so many products out there now, I was just in the pharmacy the other day looking around and there are so many products now like face creams, and you mentioned it earlier, that include uh, sun, well, say they include sunscreen. What to make of those? Because clearly it's easy if you buy yourself a face cream that has SPF in it, so to speak, uh, and you use that. Are, are those effective? So, so it really depends. What I tell my patients is to use a sunscreen first and then put a moisturizer on top if they want to do that. You know, for example, for women, Often, um, some foundations will contain uh, SPF ingredients. So, always put a, a sunscreen, a proper sunscreen, on first, and then you can put uh, makeup with an SPF on it on top of the sunscreen. What about concerns about what's in sunscreen? I know that's come up quite a bit, and that's why people look to those. You were mentioning uh, NPN numbers for natural product numbers earlier. Uh, some people are concerned about the chemicals in, in your average uh, sunscreen that you buy uh, at the drugstore. If you want alternatives to chemicals, what does that look like these days? Well, there are also other ways to protect your skin. You can use sun protective clothing. You can use hats. You can avoid the sun between the hours of 10 and 4. So there are other things you can do. And then with respect to um, the issue with chemicals, I always say to my patients, you are more likely to get skin cancer than you are to have a problem with the chemicals in the sunscreen. Right. And what about, I guess some of those mineral alternatives are out there, though, if people are people want, I guess. Yeah. So you can use things um, like titanium dioxide um, or zinc oxide, which are also other, um, you know, sunscreen ingredients and some people prefer. Right. Uh, those are, that's that, that stuff you used to see back in the day. That's all that's very white. Right. Is, that, is, is Has it gotten any better? Right. So it's um, it's better now. What they've done is they've micronized the particles and made them smaller. So they're a little bit more cosmetically acceptable. Yeah, it doesn't look like toothpaste, right? Is that the, uh, yeah, as it used to. You mentioned it already, but clothing can go a long way. I mean, you know, I, I lived in other parts of the country. It's very, other parts of the world, rather, and it's very common to see, you know, parasols or umbrellas in the summer in some parts of the world. And we're seeing more of them here now, I think, because, you know, there are more people who use them. But uh, clothing, you mentioned SPF clothing can help. Any kind of clothing that covers you up a bit can certainly uh, go a long way. Absolutely. So, for clothing, it's um, how it's rated. It's rated with the UPF, with the, which is an, basically an ultraviolet protection factor. And you can get UPF clothing or 50 or higher. So, you know, you want to look for that. And basically, the rule of thumb is if you take the clothing and hold it up to the sun and you can't see the sun through it, then it, it gives you, uh, you know, good protection. 
Yeah, there's so much there's so much stuff out there to protect us from from UV the, these days that you you'd think there's no real reason not to be <laughs> to, to not indulge in it. Uh, but I guess a lot of us still. I mean, you must see people who simply don't bother, right? Well, the, the the issue is is that there's there's a long lag time between exposure to to the sun and the development of skin cancer. So I think it would be easier to educate patients if you know the day before you were you went went out in the sun and then the next day you develop skin cancer, then people would see the relationship. But it's hard when it's such a, a long time between exposure and the development of skin cancer. And the people who are the most careful often are the people who have already had skin cancer, but by then it, it's you know late in the game. Right. And I, so I guess in a nutshell, you know, if you have something that's a bit past its sell-by date, don't toss it. You can still use it. It's just not as effective. Um, and, and I suppose one thing that always comes up is it doesn't matter really what kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm quite pale. So given my, you might notice by the name O'Hara burn, uh, you know, obviously I don't tan particularly well. And we're always very conscious of, of, the, of, of having to, you know, protect yourself. But I guess for every skin tone, every age, um, you know, protecting yourself against UV helps. Right. If, if you, it, it, what I say is, if you have skin, you need to protect it. That's good. That's good advice, uh, Doctor Lisa Collette. Thanks so much. Thank you. 